Today, I'm talking with Crystal Kadakia. Crystal is the co-creator of the Owens Kadakia Learning Cluster Design Model, and she's also the co-author of the book called Designing for Modern Learning, Beyond Addy and Sam, which are two instructional design models. And her model, or rather her and Lisa's model, addresses the need to surround employees and learners with what she calls learning assets, which are designed to close performance gaps. And there are five actions which underlie the model, and that's what we'll go through today with Crystal. And as you'll hear in this chat with Crystal, a lot of organizations focus on designing content for learning rather than designing content for learners. And this is where she introduces the concept of understanding the relevance of learning personas, the kinds of people you have in your organization as clients and what they need from the learning so that it matches the way they learn. In today's episode, what learning cluster design is, what learner profiles are, what are the five LCD or learning cluster design action points which you could use in creating great learning assets for your clients, and how, of course, using the principles from the book, you can successfully design for modern learning. This is the Training Business Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the show. My name is Mark. I'm the lucky host, the privileged host of this weekly training business podcast. This is the podcast for people just like you and me, training and learning and development practitioners, professionals, people who are in organizations in learning practitioner roles, training practitioner roles, or in fact, outside working as consultants, freelancers, or even part of a training business. So the goal of this episode today and every episode of the podcast each week is to bring you valuable content, whether it's a one-to-one episode, just you and I, if you will, where I'm talking to you, or is today's case, as is today's case, we have a guest on the show, in which case it's Crystal Kadakia, the author of a recent published book, recently published book, a very interesting book, in fact, called Designing for Modern Learning Beyond Addy and Sam. And there's a fresh episode of the podcast every single Thursday in whichever podcast platform you are listening to now on, you will find an episode every single Thursday on your podcast platform of choice. So can I ask you a small favor, first of all, before we go into today's episode, can you please click on subscribe? And the reason is it costs you absolutely nothing, but means the world to me and my team because it validates what we do. And we put lots of work each week into the podcast to get this on front of people like you. And I'm all the time interested to hear from people like you, whether it's your first time listening or your not your first time listening, what you find valuable about the episodes on the show, what kinds of topics would help you and your training, consulting, coaching, facilitation business, what kinds of challenges you face, and perhaps the kinds of guests that you'd like me to have on the show, or perhaps even one-to-one solo episodes. There are loads of ideas. I know you've got great ones too, so please drop me a line, mark at trainingbusiness.com. And of course, you can connect to me or with me on LinkedIn, and that's another place to drop me some 
notes or feedback on what you like or dislike about the podcast because like any person who's in learning and development I'd like to know and learn from you as to what helps you and serves you so I can develop the podcast into the kind of platform each week which serves you and of course you can find out more about the podcast and the content by visiting our website which is www.trainingbusiness.com If you're a trainer, if you're a learning and development professional, let me invite you right now to subscribe to the blog and of course to add content to the blog. If you'd like to provide some article or some post on your area of expertise, something which will help people out there as training and development facilitation coaching practitioners, then I'd love you to take me up on that offer. And you can again contact me via mark at trainingbusiness.com. Let me know what topic you feel would be useful because as you'll see on the blog, there are plenty of people out there who are providing articles and I'm very happy to put those up on the blog. Um, When I've contacted people in the past, they've said to me, we don't like self-promotion. Actually, that's not true for me. I want you to promote yourself. I want you to promote your business as a consultant, as a coach. I want to give you a place to put up your angle on things, your ideas for things, and I'm quite happy to provide a link back to your website. So this is your chance to share with the rest of us what it is you do, whom you serve, and why people need what you provide them with. So think of this as your own blog, not just my blog, but it's the chance for you to share your content, your model, your expertise with people out there who could actually find value in it and may even enlist you or hire you to help them to deliver that particular content, your particular model, book, or whatever it is that you do for people out there as a coaching, training, facilitation, learning and development practitioner. Crystal, hi, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. It's great to be here. Let's begin with your story. How did you get into learning and development and why? So I have a pretty funny background. I think there's a lot of people in L&D who come from different places. I'm definitely one of them. I started out actually as a chemical engineer, and I worked for three years as an engineer for Procter & Gamble. So there I was doing my engineering thing, working on the plant floor, and I was always the person who was really poking at the team, like, hey, how are we doing? Um, Because for me, I realized if us as a team, we're not functioning or we don't have the capability or we don't have the communication or we don't have the process, we're not going to be able to get the job done anyway. And so I found myself just time and again feeling like some of the problems on the manufacturing line, those were simpler and easier and maybe even less fun than the problems going on with people and culture. And so I started actually making a shift. And luckily, Procter & Gamble's huge company. They were happy to support me um, moving into a new role. So after some time, I moved into a training manager role for engineering and manufacturing globally. And so it was really interesting because there was a the why I got into learning, there was like this very subtle uh, background kind of, oh, wow, I'm not really sure if engineering is the right fit for me. And then there was a crystal clear moment where I had taken the Finders assessment with the 
yeah, with like with like the Asian American um, or the Asian community in in the engineering group. And when I saw my top five strengths and theirs, it was like, okay, I think I really definitely am not in the right field because all of mine had to do with people. It was like developer, relator. I think it was uh, individual or there was there was one around like in being able to bring together individual strengths and integrate them. I can't remember what that one was called, but that was me. And then everyone else was like analytical problem solving, like, you know, what you would expect of engineers. So I was like, okay, I definitely want to solve these kinds of people problems more than I want to solve engineering problems. I want to use my engineering skills in a different way. So I did the training manager role. And then I realized I want to do this not just for training, but I want to do this from that culture change perspective. And I want to do it for more problems than just one or more problem, more companies than just one company's culture. I really wanted the diversity of challenges um, and I wanted to make that kind of impact. And so I left P&G and what I did was I actually did a couple things for a while on the side of my full-time job. I was trying out career coaching and I realized that that wasn't going to be a viable full-time business model for me. I was 25 at the time and, and just building the funnel and that type of thing. It, it wasn't really the best place for a viable income full-time. And um, at the same time, I had started speaking at ATD chapters about generations in the workplace and how my point of view on it was that this this is not the way to go. We we shouldn't be training people on generational traits because everyone's confused when they walk out of the room. They don't know if they're just supposed to memorize this list of traits and then try to change up their style every time they talk to these different generations. I, of course, engineering me is like, this is not effective. If it's not solving the problem, it's not effective. There's got to be a different way. And what I saw was that the real underlying cause of the issues between generations came from technology and how big of a change the internet and social media has been and has been changing how we're all wired, not just millennials or Gen Z, and that the workplace as a whole is the thing that's outdated, that's stuck in this industrial age and we're lagging behind. So this is now 10, 10 years for me that I left Procter & Gamble. I started um, my, I have two businesses now, um, but I started working on culture change really around evolving, um, different aspects of people, uh, as it relates to organizations moving from this industrial age thinking to digital age. And it started with speaking and some consulting. I ended up getting my master's in organization development and today I am an independent OD practitioner and I also have a, a training business because I never left training behind and I had a whole uh, body of work around evolving L&D specifically with a colleague of mine, um, Lisa M.D. Owens. Speaking of Lisa, you wrote the book then, Designing for Modern Learning Beyond Addy and Sam. Um, so what was the thinking behind that? You, you saw some kind of gap for a more up-to-date model. So what was the, 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 the stimulus for that book and its contents? Yeah, so about five years ago, ATD, actually, the Association for Talent Development, came to me and asked me to develop a workshop on the modern learner. 
And that's because by that point, I was definitely seen as like a millennial expert and I'd been doing all this keynote speaking on generations and all of that, all of that jazz. And I looped Lisa into the project. Lisa and I uh, met at her very last week at PNG and my first week as a training manager. Uh, she was the dean of the R&D University at PNG. She was also started out as a chemical engineer and ended up in <laughs> in the training world. So she had like over 30 years of experience as an L&D person and, and we had really uh, connected. So I looped her into the project and of course, ATD thinks I'm going to design a course around, hey, how do we teach for millennials? How do we design learning for millennials? And Lisa and I, being the engineers we are, we were like, no, this goes back to the question, what is modern learning? And what does L&D need to do differently to meet the needs of modern learning, modern learners? And who are these modern learners? Is it that assumption that it's millennials, Gen Z, or is there something more going on? Again, you know, same body of work for me of, is there something more going on beyond generations that we need to be thinking about? And so we actually just looked at over, uh, I mean, we benchmarked over 50 different learning models and learning theories. We looked at how things have changed over the last 50 years, and we started noticing one very fundamental gap. And that was that all of our traditional instructional design models are really focused on helping L&D design one thing really, really well. That thing could be a class, a course, a program, a set of videos. But, you know, whenever we write our objectives, it's by the end of this video, you will be able to do this. Classic, yeah. And <laughs> that's totally not, like if I asked you, like what's the last time you learned something and how did you do it? You probably wouldn't say, oh, there was just that one video I watched and it got me everything I needed. Oh, you probably used a couple different things. I mean, unless it was something super simple, you know, for any of our complex capabilities, we're all learning through so many different ways, times, and places. And that was the big gap. And so we started designing a model for how do you design smartly, strategically, when you're designing more than one thing together, like as an integrated set, like that's your new deliverable. And so that's what we call a learning cluster. Our model is the learning cluster design model. And for the last five years, we've been teaching it through ATD workshops, which ultimately led to the book we published last year, Designing for Modern Learning Beyond Addie and Sam. And and the, the just last piece I'll say before, you know, pausing on this piece of information is that we uh, we really spent a lot of time thinking through how the LCD model works with our body of expertise that we already have as L&D professionals. So it's not about, you know, designing for modern learning, throwing away Addie and Sam. It's about going beyond them. So how do you build on these great skills we have? Um, we still need to design the one thing well. But we also need to know the next piece. How do we not just design all these, you know, classes, courses, programs, videos, e-learning, job aids, independent of one another, right? We need to know the next thing. How do all of those work together to close a capability gap? So that's the, the concept of a, of a cluster then? That's the concept of the cluster. Because when you do that, when you design all those multiple assets in consideration of one another, now you can change on-the-job behavior. 
And that's the business gap we've been trying to address for so long as L&D that Lisa and I saw, well, it's obvious if you're just designing one thing, how can you be confident that you're closing the, the gap back on the job? You need more than one thing. You need it in more times, ways, and places to have any kind of confidence really that you're impacting back on the job in the flow of work. So you mentioned you've you've reviewed or benchmarked 50 different models. What makes learning cluster design then an appropriate model specifically for the digital age, irrespective of the generation we're addressing? Yeah, so what makes it really appropriate is that, it. The, I mean, a couple different things come to mind with that question, Mark. Um, one is that it's not very prescriptive. So there are newer models, but they try, they can tell you, they can do a really good job of implying exactly what kind of technology to use. Or, you know, if you look in the last five years, the number of workshops and courses, for example, just on microlearning or just on developing e-learning or just on developing um, uh, virtual reality or augmented reality types of learning. Again, that's fine, but we're now, we don't know what kinds of technologies are going to come in the future. What we need is a, a strategic frame of how to incorporate those new technologies, how to evaluate the characteristics of those and the elements of those and the design of those as it pertains to our learner and our business gap. So one thing that makes LCD model particularly well-suited for the digital age is that, that flexibility, that it's about working with the designer's um, strategic mindset, their knowledge, and it's giving them a frame and a really strong set of principles and tools to work with any change, any kind of culture they're in. They might be in a very traditional organizational culture that has no tech, and they can still use the LCD model to modernize their learning. And someone who is working on VR can use it to modernize their approach and and really think strategically about all the times, ways, places their learners might need it. Um, the second thing I'll say that's especially suited for the digital age is uh, it, the digital age did something very cool to the world, I think, which is to globalize it even more. And, the, you know, sure, there's there's a lot of reasons why we focus on diversity and inclusion today, but it all really started with the opening up of of the lack of geographic borders between people, which which really started with the internet and social media. And so this, you know, 50, 60 years ago, this idea of a single target audience made sense. That makes no sense now. It, it's very hard to assume you can make a difference when you treat all your learners like a monolith. So another thing that makes it very suited for the digital age is that we focus on identifying meaningful learner personas and then thinking through these different learning assets based on each of those learner personas. So we don't expect everybody to use every single learning asset we come up with for the cluster. In fact, by design, we want certain learner personas to use certain assets because we've studied them and they've told us, this is what's most helpful for me versus another learner persona. So you want them to choose? We want them to choose. And that's a huge huge shift because in in the past we've still really been focused on the L&D person as the expert the SME as the expert and now we're really moving towards learner choice 
because they know their context better than we do. So those are two, just off the top of my head, two of the reasons why LCD is so suited for the digital age. Honestly, I could probably come up with 10 more. <laughs> so if we think of the, the complexity in creating learning assets and we want to give people a choice, what is the implication then for um, instructional designers, um, learning and development practitioners who have to then almost replicate or create that training or learning in multiple formats. Is there, a, is there a large footprint there from from a kind of resourcing perspective? Yeah, capacity is one of the the first things people get freaked out about when they see I'm the model, out. right? They're like, this. oh man. <laughs> so you're, you're trying to tell me I, I don't just get to create the class, I get to create all of this? I get to create a cluster? Oh, wow. Well, here's the thing is when we design the class or the course, we tend to try to cram everything into that class course or set of videos, whether it's it's needed or not, because that's the only asset we're thinking of creating. So one of the things that allows for actually the same capacity, or sometimes it can be even less, I was just talking to someone yesterday where it's even less, is that you're not cramming everything in that one course. You're actually repurposing, you're chunking, you're putting the information in the right place at the right time, depending on that learner persona. So that's one piece that actually can make it easier for people rather than um, harder. And then the other piece is the reason why creating more than one asset right now feels like such a burden is because people do it random, ad hoc. They don't have a model to guide them at all. They don't have tools to guide them to think through it. Um, and so they create the video one one month and then a couple months later they create the e-learning and then they create that, you know, they have no real plan or roadmap for how to create these things and or when or how they work together. Um, and they also rely only on themselves because they don't have a roadmap to create these things. When you actually have a whole strategy, a whole plan, now you can enroll the learners in creating a lot of the content for you. We see that happen a lot. That's smart, yeah. You can leverage other departments. Um, a learning asset for us is anything that creates that moment of learning. That could be as small as a poster. Um, we've seen informational posters be a moment of learning for someone. And that's something that maybe marketing and communications can help L&D create as well. So there, it's it's very interesting. We actually see that when you don't have a strategy or roadmap, just like everything else in business, things become a lot more inefficient. Um, and that's a really big way LCD helps you manage. And then of course we have technology now today that we didn't before. LMS systems are, we're constantly um, looking for LMS systems that handle learning clusters really well. We actually uh, have a couple of partners that we really feel like do that, such as 360 Learning or, or Wisetails LM, LMS. And they do a really great job of not just allowing for multiple assets that are you know, sometimes on learning playlists dedicated towards certain learner personas. They also allow for a really big integration of social learning, immediate learning, and formal learning. And those are the three ways we categorize are kinds of learning assets. So we don't just focus on that formal classroom learning, but we also focus on things like coaching or um, that Microsoft Teams type of learning, or you know, if you're using Yammer or what whatnot. So there are lo lots and lots of channels out there where people could derive learning assets from, and um, it, it reminds me of a conversation I had a couple of 
years ago with someone who said, this is the way things will be. It, it's often the case that the training is not something that's formal. It's often informal. It can be leveraged from what we call tribal knowledge. It's the, it's the knowledge, the assets in people's minds that, that they have. They've not yet formalized it, but uh, they can be partners in, in creating learning assets. It's not something which necessarily has to fall to learning and development professionals and instructional designers, right? Absolutely, Mark. And that's, I would even tweak that statement. It's not even this is the way it will be. This is the way it already is. It's just a matter of whether L&D is a part of that story or not. And what's what's unfortunate is we see a lot of times that L&D is not a part of that story. When I am working with organizations, a lot of the learners tell me, we, we ask them this question when we do our learner persona interviews, you know, what how, what do you know about your L&D resources today internally? And when do you use them? And they'll just say, oh, well, L&D just does training. So, you know, whenever I need a training class, I'll, I'll go. But that's sometimes, you know, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year. But the rest of the time, they're, they're Googling. They're asking their neighbor. They're um, trying to find an internal mentor. They're trying, and you know, they're trying. They're spending all this energy trying to find these resources, and it's like that's not their job. Their job is to do their job. <laughs> so why isn't L and D expanding into the rest of the story? So it's not a. This is how it will be. This like like whenever I work on things outside of L and D, this is the same thing I tell leaders. This has nothing to do with how it will be. It already is that way, and we're just lagging in providing, in changing the way we do things in a way that fits the narrative of today. So if we dig into your model a bit, um, you have five main actions, right? The, the change action, the learn action, the upgrade action, the surround action, and the track action. So, so let's fo- focus on those for a moment. Just walk us through each of those, why they're called, what they're called, and what they mean for us if we're using your model. Yeah, so a couple of things uh, just overarching. When we were thinking about the overall model, as I mentioned before, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. One of the things we know is that it's really hard for anyone to change and evolve if something is completely brand new. So even when you initially hear the five actions, the change, learn, upgrade, surround, and track, you're like, okay, that sounds a little familiar. You know, of course, we're going to track transformation, right? There's some things going on there that sound familiar. And that's good. We want it to sound familiar. We don't want our model to scare people (laughs) and be like, oh, you know, everything I already know, I I can't use anymore. So that's really important. Um, When we dig into the five actions, the change action, uh, well, I should say one other thing before digging in. One is that these five actions aren't necessarily they don't necessarily have to be used in in a particular order. So that's something very interesting because most models are very sequential. But in our case, we've seen, again, modern times, we have we have to base we have to actually um, account for the instructional designer or the training manager's context. It's their choice what part of the model makes the most sense to start with. And this will make a little sense when I go into the five actions. So um, the change action is about changing on the job behavior. And this is where we actually set our goal for the learning cluster. And that's a little bit different. In the past, we would set our goal for 
the single asset we're creating. You know, we would create maybe terminal objectives, enabling objectives. At the end of this video, you'll be able to such and such. In our change action, we've now created a new hierarchy or a new level in our hierarchy of objectives outside of that terminal objective, above that terminal objective, you now have what we call the strategic performance objective. And that objective is the goal for all of those assets you're gonna create. And again, because we're creating more than one thing, we can have the confidence, greater confidence, that we are impacting change back on the job. So our, our, our strategic performance objective that we craft in this change action is really focused on conversations with stakeholders on what they want to see learners do differently if this learning cluster was successful. It's all written in stakeholder and learner-focused language. So that's the change action. And it's it's a really big one because, you know, you you go where you put your focus. And if we put our focus just on the end of the class, that's the only performance we get is at the end of the class. If we put our focus on the job and we actually spend adequate time defining what that's going to look like, now we actually have hope that we can get there. And so that's really what we're doing with the change action. So it could be focusing on a business pain, for example. Exactly. And actually, we have multiple components. So each of these actions comes with a tool. So in the change action, we focus both on the business pain and the on-the-job behaviors we'll see differently. And that comes together to form that strategic performance objective. Okay, so number two then is the learn action. Right, exactly, the learn action. And the learn action is about learning learner-to-learner differences. And this is where we craft our hypothesis around learner personas and go do some investigation around what does their flow of work look like? What is their relationship to the performance gap? What are their barriers to achieving those on-the-job behaviors we just talked about? And um, this is a little bit different because there, there's a lot of ideas of learner personas out there. A lot of them focus on user experience types of goals, like the, you know, at the end of the day, like whatever that that design is, can the learner navigate it easily? We're not just looking at that. Um, we're also not trying to build a library of learner personas that you can use for any business challenge. We, we think that you've got unique learner personas for every capability gap. And if, it makes sense if you think about it, right? Like if I'm working on a DEI challenge versus a software training challenge, the learner personas could be totally different. Um, on that DEI challenge, I really might be thinking about folks who are in different places on their DEI journey. Maybe there's a woke persona. Is there such a persona? <laughs> I don't know, right? I'm, I'm thinking about it. There's a few, but you know, maybe they've already got that motivation. They've already got that buy-in that DEI is important versus maybe someone is maybe um, lagging in the journey. Well, I'm going to create different learning assets for those two, two different personas. And those personas are going to be totally different than my software training personas. So that's what we do in that learn action. And again, we have a tool and, and we teach all of this in our virtual workshop too in, in depth of how do you do this type of work and thinking. And number three then is your upgrade action. Yeah, we've actually had people start with our learn action because they get feedback from courses, existing courses like, oh, this didn't feel like it was for me. And when you hear that, that's often a a sign that you need to go figure out what your learner personas are. Um, you're doing that single target audience thing and, and training doesn't feel like it's for them. Um, 
Yeah, so the upgrade action. Uh, this is where we're upgrading existing assets. And this is something pretty much brand new for L&D. We have really great learning models and methods around designing things for the first time. But when things get out of date or we need to upgrade them, we really don't have a method to the madness. And the upgrade action changes all that. Uh, what we see in the digital age is a lot of people look at their existing classes and they're either overwhelmed and they're like, man, this is all this is all out of date. I don't know where to start. So I'm just going to create a bunch of new stuff on top of this and clutter my LMS with new training. <laughs> and that doesn't help learners. Or they start to invest in new technologies and just ignore the training they already had. Or they go through the work of actually upgrading each one, which is, is fine as well. But there really isn't a process for that. So we actually, Lisa actually um, did a great research study where she interviewed and surveyed folks to figure out what makes a, a, a what makes a learning feel modern to them. And out of that came nine elements. And again, these aren't prescriptions, but they're more like characteristics of the design that feel modern to people. So you could use it with any technology. It's things like, um, is a learning chunked? Is it accessible? It does it use multimedia, video, audio, kinesthetic types of elements. Uh, does it involve social learning? So we have nine elements of modern learning, and it helps you quickly evaluate a existing asset for quote unquote modernness, and you actually get a modernness score. Um, and you can use that for a book. You can use that for your VR program, and out through evaluating it, you come up with a bunch of new ideas for, well, this is what I could do to upgrade this. Okay. Number four is the surround action. I'm curious about the title or the label of that one. So the surround action, the full name, this is really the heart of the model. The full name of that action is surrounding learners with meaningful assets action. So it's a long name. That's why we shorten it to surround. I'm glad you did. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's really the heart. And the, this is where we take Wherever you started, if you started with change, learn, or upgrade, wherever you started, you take all the learnings from those first three actions, and then this is where you really build your learning cluster. You, instead of um, just saying, well, hey, the cool tools I have in my toolkit as L&D are, are video and e-learning, I'm just going to do that. Instead, you look at all that data and you say, okay, well, what kind of social learning assets do I want to create for my learner personas? What immediate assets that are available 24-7 do I want to create? And what formal assets, especially for those learning for the first time, do, do I want to create? And each of those three buckets, we call those the learning touch points. It's three ways that you can reach learners just from an overarching uh, category perspective. And we use those three learning touch points, have you brainstorm for each of your learner personas what assets are going to suit them the best based on your your investigation and strategic research in the earlier actions. So this is really the heart of the model. This is where you build the learning cluster. Um, and rather than it being a haphazard or a random or ad hoc approach, it's taking all those learnings and really synthesizing those into the assets that give you the most confidence of impact and change. Okay, and number five then, track action. So having created the assets... Um, and develop the right ones in line with the personas we have. What, what is the track action about? 
Now, of course, you're going to want to track transformation. So you're going to want to know how your learning cluster performed. And the big difference here is that this is a, a really emerging area because of big data. The one part about managing multiple assets that is pretty difficult is managing all the metrics and data that comes out of all those assets. Um, and in the past, we might have just tried to track how that one class or e-learning or set of videos is doing against our, you know, big business goals. Now we're tracking the impact of the overall learning cluster as well as those individual learning assets. And for now, what we do is we tell folks to brainstorm that kind of long list of metrics for individual learning assets and the overall cluster, and then really just narrow down to three to five that you think are going to tell the most powerful story of transformation, most powerful and you know, real story of transformation that's going on. Um, just because it's it's overwhelming, right? Like if you actually report 20 different metrics, that's for just one capability gap, that's too overwhelming. And we all know that there's a big combination between the analytics side and the storytelling side. So we, in that tool, we really help people craft um, that, that integration between analytics and storytelling in a way that really tells the story of transformation with that learning cluster. So what kinds of organizations find the, your model most applicable to them, most helpful for them? Um, honestly, I, I, we've worked with a lot of different industries at this point. So recently, we're working a lot in the Silicon Valley sector. We So my team, the LCD group, we do two things. We teach the workshop um, so that way we can upskill L&D in the model. And the second thing we do is we consult and we work on challenges that you know folks either feel like wow, we really need some expert help in, or they don't have the capacity or those types of things. So we've been working a lot in the Silicon Valley space lately. We've been working in the pharmaceutical space. We've worked in the manufacturing consumer goods space. I think the the organizations that have the biggest challenge with the model are ones where they're everybody around them expects L&D to provide training, and that's, that's it. And there's no room, like there's no um, possibility to do more than that. And and that's, to be honest, that's actually very few organizations we've come across where there's no possibility. Um, most folks start off with the expectation that L&D delivers training, and then we get them to deliver a little bit more. We get them to deliver a little bit of the cluster, and their stakeholders and their learners start to see the difference, and they're like, oh, okay, this actually, this this could be kind of cool. Like, I can expect something new from L&D. Most organizations are like that. So there isn't, I wouldn't say an industry specifically that this is good for, um, or even culture of organization. I would say there's just a few organizations that really, they're really stuck in that L&D, all you can do is deliver a class. That's all we want. Um, and that's that. And I, I'll say it's actually been even more surprising who's using this model, who's not L&D. So we actually have a lot of sales and marketing folks who have joined our workshops over the last year and a half because they're seeing this as a great model to use for customer education. Um, we've had companies that sell training, like off the like off the shelf, shelf type of training, say like, hey, you know, I think we can make a bigger impact if we start selling 
our same content, but as a learning cluster, we can make a bigger impact with our customers. So that's been an interesting market. Um, we've seen professors and higher education and even high school teachers who are looking at, especially with COVID and the pandemic, you know, how do we redesign our learning from the classroom to really a variety of engagement points and LCD models been interesting to them for those reasons. And then finally, I would say we've seen um, another surprising audience to me has been executive level folks like CEOs, COOs, CMOs, people who are working on uh, large scale change efforts because it's a part of their job to lead the organization's culture. And, um, you know, they look at this and they're like, okay, this is great because this really integrates not just training, but the uh, it helps organize all of the reminders we might do after the training. Or um, if we're rolling out a big tech initiative, it's not just that change management, let's just go to these classes and we're done. Um, and we're stuck with all this resistance to using the new technology. It actually addresses all of that, all in one model and one strategy. So we've actually seen a lot of interest from executives on this. Where can people find out more about you? Because I know you have your own Kadakia consulting brand as well. And you're doing some exciting work with clients, including the Sierra Club. Absolutely. So um, from a learning cluster design standpoint, it's learningclusterdesign.com. And that's where you can learn a lot about the L&D evolution. And then for me personally, I work on a lot of things from employee engagement, DEI. The project with Sierra Club was a, a big structural change project. Um, and that's through kadakiaconsulting.com. So it's my last name, kadakiaconsulting.com. And uh, I do a lot there. So <laughs> there's a lot going on. And people can find out, of course, on LinkedIn. They can connect with you there as well. Absolutely. Brilliant. Crystal, it's been so wonderful having you on the program. And I've, I've waited a long time to, to interview you. I'm glad we could uh, get this scheduled. And it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Same. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. My thanks today to Crystal for being my guest on the show. Um, it was well worth waiting because I think Crystal's work is fascinating. And of course, my uh, acknowledgement that Lisa wasn't on the show today. She's also a contributor to the model. But it was my pleasure to talk to Crystal. And you can find out more about Crystal by visiting learningclusterdesign.com. That's learningclusterdesign.com and kadakiaconsulting.com. And of course, you can find the book online which Lisa and Crystal have written. And that's absolutely fascinating, very topical right now. We've been through a whole raft of changes since COVID began. So I, I think as a learning and development practitioner, we really need to be tuned in to the changes which are fast coming to how we train people, how we develop people, and leveraging learning assets in a way that makes sense to people who learn. Because people, more than ever, are conscious of the power that they have to choose the sources of information that help them to do their job. If you've got great ideas for episodes like today's episode with Crystal, or even content that you'd like to submit to the blog as, a, as an expert practitioner, please keep those coming. You can email me directly via mark at trainingbusiness.com. And my final request to you today, simply to subscribe to the podcast right now on your platform of choice, whether it's Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or many more, because there are plenty of platforms where you'll find episodes of the podcast each Thursday, every single week without fail. And that's 
my commitment and the commitment of my team to you. If there are resources, if there are things that you'd like me to provide via trainingbusiness.com, I'd love to hear your ideas because (laughs) I'm a great believer in leveraging the expertise of the audience, not just the speaker. So if you've got ideas for the kinds of assets, resources, topics, um, guests, anything you can think of that would add value to the brand, trainingbusiness.com, and even to the podcast, which you've taken time out of today to listen to. You've listened to this podcast. I know there are plenty of great podcasts out there. I listen to them too, and you've chosen to listen to this one. And for that, I'm grateful. I'd love to have you back again next week because this validates what I do. And of course, helps me to know that what I'm doing and what the team are doing is of value to you. And that's really why I do what I do. It's because it's really important to me to know that trainingbusiness.com and the podcast is helping you to do what you do because I'm in your shoes. I'm an active coach and trainer and consultant. And it's lovely to know that people like you and me um, are in need of help because if we help people, we should be able to be coachable and ask for help in return. So again, thanks for listening today. I look forward to your company next Thursday on the podcast. Until then, keep training, look after yourself and loved ones. Bye for now. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.